0: hello and welcome to keeping up with the pace an educational podcast aimed at increasing the skills knowledge and capability of health professionals across western australia each month i will be joined by guests whom will bring with them skills knowledge amazing research both local international and national in a bid to enhance the skills and knowledge of our listeners. Our aim is to share the word of palliative care far and wide throughout our state and ensure that all health professionals are prepared to care. Our goal is to not only improve health professional knowledge and understanding of palliative and supportive care education, but also improve outcomes for the people who matter most, our patients and their families. We hope that we can delve into the depths of our communities and build some strong blocks that will enable us to communicate better, improve patient outcomes, cross collaborate through networks and enhance all of the amazing work that is currently going on in our state. Our aim is to share information through knowledge and understanding. We hope that you can join us. And if you have a question or would like to get in contact with us, please feel free to email us at pace at cancerwa.asn.au. I would like to commence our podcast today by acknowledging our traditional custodians of the land that we come to you from today that being the land of the Wadjuk people from the Noongar Nation. I would like to pay my respects to their elders past, present and those emerging in the space. And most importantly, I would like to extend that respect to all Aboriginal people living and working in this area and across our beautiful country, wherever you may be joining us from. Welcome to episode two of Keeping Up With The Pace. This episode centres around grief and bereavement experienced by young people and children and how we as health professionals can best support them. I sat down with Professor Lauren Breen, who is professor in the School of Population Health at Curtin University here in Western Australia. Her award-winning applied research centres on end-of-life care and grief and loss. Most notably, she was successful in the inaugural round of the prestigious Australian Research Council Discovery Early Career Research Awards for her project Exploring Family Caregiving and Bereavement. Professor Breen has authored over 170 book chapters and peer-reviewed journal articles. Her research informs initiatives in Singapore, Hong Kong, Australia, Canada, the USA and Europe, including being the foundation of the European grief model. The Danish National Centre for Grief in partnership with the Bereavement Network Europe and the Irish Hospice Foundation. Here's what Lauren had to say. So good afternoon, Lauren. Um, Thank you for joining us, Professor Lauren Breen, um, on our second episode of the PACE podcast, Keeping Up with the PACE. Um, Lauren, you're an area or an expert in the area of grief and loss, um, a fellow in thanatology and a publisher or um, an editor of Death Studies Journal. Um, You've an extensive amount of research and work that has spanned countries, communities, um, and is Pivotal, I think, in understanding better about what grief and loss looks like. Um, one item that struck me when I was researching you um, is how straightforward you make these topics sound. Um, you've been pivotal in demystifying sensitive topics around grief through your TEDx talk and also through the Leinhardt Camp for Kids. Um, and given that this episode is dedicated to, ho- or is, um, given that this episode is um, dedicated to highlight Children's Grief Awareness Day on November 16th, I'd like to talk to you about grief um, and maybe open the topic from there. And I just wondered if you could share some insights about what's your interpretation of grief and how can we as health professionals support our patients and their families better?
1: Yeah, so I think it's important to know that grief is um, a multi-dimensional response to loss. So by that, it's not just about our feelings or our emotions. A lot of people think of grief as our feelings or they think of grief as a single emotion. And really grief is about a whole bunch of different emotions, like obviously sadness, but maybe also anger or guilt or even relief. But it also affects us physically, affects how we think, it can affect our social networks, it can affect us financially. So it's all these different uh, and multiple dimensions about grief. Um, So, yeah, I think that's sort of the first thing to understand about grief is that it's probably a lot bigger um, and affects lots of different aspects of life than how a lot of people would think
0: about it. Thanks. And I guess when it comes to children and grief, do you think that children and young people experience grief different to adults? Uh, yes,
1: definitely. And also it depends on the age of the the child themselves and their developmental stage. So, you know, we wouldn't say a three-year-old is going to grieve the same way as a 13-year-old, for example. So, you know, very young children might not actually have much of a concept of death or they might not understand that it's a permanent thing. So just like in cartoons, when the character dies and it pops back up the next time, they might think that um, someone, they might be told that someone in their life has died but think, oh, but, you know, um, they'll be back another time. And sometimes those euphemisms that we use with children uh, can be part of that because we'll say things like... um, Maybe that the the animal has gone to sleep or that we lost granddad or those kinds of things um, that are a little bit. We understand what we mean as adults. We understand that code, but children don't. So they're very sort of um, what we would call concrete thinkers and they take things quite literally. Um, And with kids, often they might also experience grief in a more... Uh, in their bodies, so they might um, have some tummy problems or um, some headaches or maybe some toileting problems or, you know, there's more of a physicality to their grief. Um, And then with adolescence, adolescence in itself is a really big transition, so add grief onto that. Um, that can be uh, you know quite a complex situation potentially for a young person to navigate through and they might become hyper vigilant and want to check locks and make sure everyone is safe all the time or they might want to test those boundaries and maybe engage in some risk-taking behaviour so yeah it really does depend a lot on the child themselves their personality and so on but also their age and developmental stage.
0: Yeah and I, I guess One of my biggest questions is really around us as health professionals and how, obviously, if you're in a pediatric facility, I would assume that health professionals in this area are trained. But in your experience, for the most part, do you find that health professionals that are newly qualified or perhaps junior staff, are we given the right tools to really ensure that we are providing the most adequate support for those young people or children that might be in our care that are grieving?
1: Yeah so I would say no and I think it's um, you know I really feel for health professionals who are put into some of the most challenging situations and you know within a family in crisis for example or a person who's having a very serious situation happen in their lives and issues of grief and loss do not often feature at all in the training of many kinds of health professionals or if it does it's at a very cursory level or it's very outdated for example talking about specific stages of grief or um, all kinds of you know, old-fashioned ideas about grief. So I do really feel for health professionals who are often thrown into this and really want to do the right thing, but they have to search out that information and they have to, yeah, it's not something that's just been part of their initial training, for example, at university or another provider or even something that they've got as part of their uh, training that's been provided for them on the job. So it is an extra challenge, unfortunately, that it, it doesn't appear in any official um, sort of accreditation guidelines for health professionals and so on. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And I guess on the back of that, can you talk me through this, this topic that I hear very frequent frequently around grief literacy um, and how best can we implement that, I guess, in our daily practice as a health professional? How can we inform ourselves to make sure that we are adequately working outside to, you know, ensure that our um, children and young people are supported.
1: Yeah, so grief literacy is a term that my colleagues and I came up with, and it's the capacity to access and use information about grief and turn it into action that, that is then caring for someone who might be grieving. Um, so, yeah, it's about having the right kinds of knowledge about grief and loss and what to do. It's about having the right values, so being compassionate and caring, and it's about turning that into action. So maybe it's about knowing um, the importance of a supportive presence for someone or things to say, or more importantly, what not to say to someone who might be grieving or knowing that it's, you know, um, checking in with someone via a text can be really helpful, particularly um, after several weeks or months um, or, not, or acknowledging things like anniversaries and special dates and times and holidays and so on. Um, so, yeah, I would like, I would, my um, ambition or my vision is to have this grief-literate world where we, we can all have a, compassionate way of responding to loss um, being compassionate to ourselves in times of loss but knowing um and feeling somewhat confident to know and feel like oh I know what to do to support my friend who's now going through something or a family member and so on um and so I'm being pretty excited that the concept of grief literacy has informed some policies um in- internationally around, um, The European grief model, for example, um, and the Irish um, Hospice Foundation model of support. Also, at the foundation of those is this concept of grief literacy that we want everyone at all levels, whether they're health professionals or not, um, yeah, to to have this core kind of uh, capacity. And a similar concept is. Um, so many health professionals who might be listening today are aware of the concept of trauma-informed care, and I have a colleague in the U.S. who, uh, with one of her colleagues, has written a report where they talk about this concept of, well, why aren't we also considering wanting to be grief-informed? What might that look like? And they talk about in their report um, what a grief-informed care, what grief-informed care could look like, and what a, what a uh, the things at its
0: foundation and its characteristics, mm-hmm. and I find that really interesting because I did look um, at one of your uh, recent papers around um, community and cultures and how different cultures experience grief and loss. And obviously, being from Ireland and having trained there as a palliative care nurse, I do, I would have always felt that we are. A community that is very informed around grief and things like that. However, the results of that were quite interesting. Um, would you like to share some of that with me? Or,
1: Yeah, so assuming I'm thinking of the same study, so I was involved in a study here in Australia where we surveyed a large mm-hmm. number of bereaved people about various things, but part of it was around where they got support and who was helpful and how helpful did they find it and, and things like that. And so we then did Um, We had colleagues in Ireland do a similar study with Irish people and then we were able to do some comparisons. And, yeah, there were probably fewer differences than we had expected for the same reason Mm. that you just um, articulated then. And, yeah, I suppose probably one of the biggest takeaways was that um, people do find family and friends to be the most supportive um, and the most accessible source of support in the wake of loss but about um, across both countries, about one third of bereaved people um, say, well, you know, I didn't get enough support. And um, yeah, I would like, I would have liked to have had more support. Um, or um, yeah, and it's also about the quality of that support. So a study that we've done more recently in Australia um, in during COVID, whether or not the death was from COVID itself. Um, we found that, um, yeah, again, about, I think it was one third of people. What we found was that when we asked people who is the most uh, or what, what source is the most helpful, they would say family and friends. But when we said, well, what what's also, um, you know, list the most unhelpful sources and number one is also family and friends. So we can't just rely on family and friends to always know what to do or say or how to be helpful not everyone has a large network of support anyway. Um, So yeah, it's not something we can just assume maybe as health professionals or health providers that, um, you know, they'll be okay with the support of family and friends because they
0: might not actually get that. Yeah, and I guess that really goes back to your first point about how grief is so multifaceted um, in that, I guess, as health professionals, sometimes we are used to a a 10-step process and, it it seems to me in my research that grief seems to come a little bit outside of that in that it's not just a straightforward thing i guess um my next question would really be around myth busting um and in i'll refer back to your TEDx talk that you did um a- around grief um i'm just wondering could you give us a short synopsis around that because it's a very interesting um piece of video uh, that i've shared far and wide but um yeah, it'd be really good for anyone who hasn't listened to it, Um, obviously, just to to know a little bit about it and what it means for young people.
1: Well, yeah, thanks so much for saying such lovely things about it. It's an interesting process, actually, because um, as people might not realise, you have to basically memorise the the presentation, but make it sound like you're sort of saying it off the top of your head. Um, So although I did have it all completely memorised, obviously, I don't anymore. But yeah, part of the talk was about Um, I guess, busting some myths about grief. Um, And there's plenty of others that I could have talked about in the talk. But yeah, I think I had about six in there. So the concept of, um, you know, there's this one myth is that grief goes in a series of set stages, and another is that it ends. So we, you know, um, we find closure and move on and um, go back to how life was before. um, and, And those kinds of things. And you know, there's there's no one way to grieve. It's, it's very individual um, and, yeah, it doesn't necessarily have this nice, neat, linear process to it. In fact, more, more commonly, grieving people will say things like, well, it comes in waves or it's not like walking a staircase or it's a roller coaster of thoughts and feelings and I've got cotton wool in my head and it's, I'm all over the place. And um, so people use those kind, that, those kinds of words and that kind of language to describe their grief. So yeah, a lot of the work I try and do, I guess, is to bust those myths. Whether it's um, in for you know a more community wide generalist audience, like in the TEDx talk, um, and also uh, I try and do some webinars and presentations and so on for health professionals as well around what what is it that they specifically need to know.
0: Yeah, and I think at the end of this I will obviously share any links that we've discussed today in regards to resources for health professionals to guide perhaps a novice practitioner or perhaps someone who is more um experienced but who perhaps is wanting to refresh their knowledge or areas that they can access um one of the other components I noticed was that you're heavily involved with the Lionheart camp for kids and obviously that really um signifies that help and supportive system and structure. Can you talk to me a little bit about what this camp is and how it impacts the community in Western Australia?
1: Yeah so Lionheart Camp for Kids is is an organisation that aims to support children who are grieving and their families because of course some of the best ways to support grieving kids is to support their parents or caregivers and the adults in their lives. So a few years ago now the CEO of Lionheart Um, Shelley Skinner um, contacted me and said you know I want to set up this uh, charity we're going to have these camps Um, I'd like to have some you know research evidence or or something can you and your team help evaluate our first camp so we did that as um, we actually had a master's student do that for her master's project Um, and after that um, that's when Shelley and the others on the board asked me to then join the board of Lionheart. So I've been involved on the board for uh, a few, couple of years now. And, yeah, so I think it does some really important stuff in the community, um, doing different camps. For, initially, it was for children 5 to 12, and now they also have branched out to adolescents as well. Um, they had to branch out to doing some online services because of COVID um, and a whole raft of different things that you can see on their website. Um, yeah, my main involvement is not necessarily face to face delivery of any of the stuff, but um, yeah, I suppose a bit more at the board level. Um, yeah, so I think it's a yeah, really important service, and that we didn't have something like that in Western Australia before, or we had some similar some similar things but it might have depended on the cause of death Um, and so other kids might have missed out so for Lionheart it's um, an adult in the children's life who has died but that could be from any cause and then um, yeah it's quite broad
0: yeah. And I guess, obviously, given that pace is a, a, an adjunct to the Cancer Council, obviously, a lot of the research and information around grief and bereavement does centre around um, grief and bereavement of cancer patients or patients with cancer um, who have died from cancer. And do you feel that there is a difference for children when they experience the death of a loved one to cancer versus the death of a loved one from perhaps let's say a heart attack?
1: Mm, That's a really interesting question. I bet Shelley would have the answer for that. Um, She seems to be (laughs) the font of all knowledge of all of these things. Um, Certainly adults would say, I want to speak, well, not all adults, but many adults would often say, you know, I want to speak to other people who've had, um, you know, their loved one die in a similar way to me. I don't know if that's as important for kids or whether it's just someone else who also has had their dad die or someone else who I think for kids, although um, grief in childhood or bereavement in childhood is much more common than people think, it's still not a hugely common experience. So kids might be the only they might be the only person in their classroom or they might feel like they're the only kid in their entire school. Um, who is experiencing this and feel like they're all alone. And I think that's one of the huge um, parts of, you know, that power of Lionheart is to be in the same room with a whole bunch of other kids who actually also have that experience and they can build those connections and that community both for the kids themselves but also for their parents or caregivers so that, you know, they, they actually build that community.
0: Yeah. And that really demonstrates a building of community and in harnessing that community spirit. I guess um, when we talk about community spirit and things like that, we also look at marginalized groups such as culturally and linguistically diverse um, groups and also Aboriginal people um, and Torres Strait Islander people. Do you feel that um, from your experience that members of the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander community or people who are Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander, do they experience grief and loss differently as children to those of us who maybe are not Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander?
1: Yeah, so I think it's really interesting when we look at the bulk of, say, the research that's that's ever existed about grief and loss and bereavement, quite a lot of it is very much focused on, you know, white women um, grieving the deaths of their husbands from some kind of illness. So there's a lot less about different kinds of deaths, different age groups, different cultural groups. Um, and yeah, there's so much more um, that needs to be done and, and um, that we need to know about. I think there are certainly some differences. We know obviously for Aboriginal and or Torres Strait Islander people, there's um, often an experience of loss on top of loss on top of loss um in terms of colonization and its ongoing impacts in terms of um, deaths being at a younger age um causes of death um you know uh, being more uh, likely to be sudden deaths um, and preventable deaths um and a whole host of other kinds of things and so um I certainly wouldn't say that I'm an expert in this as someone who's not Um, Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander myself, but um, as I'm sure you know, I have worked with PACE before and with a a Noongar woman, Angela Ryder, who Mm -hmm. Angela and I together developed some workshops and we did two different workshops. Some were, um, I suppose, for health professionals generally to understand grief and loss in the Aboriginal community, um, and some specifically for Aboriginal health workers. Um, and so, yeah, Angela and I, as I said, we developed these and we also um, uh, delivered these workshops both in Perth and in uh, Albany. Um, so, yeah, again, I, I don't, I'm again, not the fond of all knowledge of that, but um, Angela Ryder, uh, absolute expert and amazing person.
0: Yes, I'm definitely keen to tap you both on the shoulder again and have those sessions <laughs> delivered. Um, I guess in in reading about grief and loss and in reading about what's topical through COVID and through how the the um, changes have occurred in our communities and in our state, do you feel that WA is adequately supported to deliver this supportive approach to grief and bereavement um, with children and young people or what do you feel we need in the state that we could potentially do more of or reach out to? Obviously we have the Lionheart Camp for Kids but do you feel that from a a health perspective um, and a department of health perspective that were adequately supported or do you think we still have a way to go in in understanding and providing that excellent grief literacy that we so want to achieve?
1: Hmm. I think one of the things that the pandemic I, I don't like to talk about the positives so I have to be careful about how to do this um, but yeah I suppose one of the unintended positives of for want of a better word and I'm sure any listeners will um forgive me for using that term but it made us and made the community understand a lot more about the impacts of non-death losses and I think that has been um, a gain for us because obviously we all know that we can grieve when someone dies but there's also been a bunch of non-death losses for various people so for young people for example maybe they lost, the ability to go to their last school ball or a graduation event. Obviously, for mm-hmm. um, older people, maybe they um, felt that they lost their last few good years to travel around the world and, and various things for various people at all different ages and and so on. So, um, so I think the recognition about non-death losses being important um, has helped put, I guess, grief a bit more on the spotlight or in the spotlight. I don't think it's really well understood yet in general, the intersection between grief and mental health. And that's Mm. something that I'd like to and that I work really hard on trying to, um, you know, whether it's uh, doing lectures to psychology students or um, mental health professionals, health professionals generally trying to understand that because grief itself is certainly not a mental health condition, but there are intersections with things like depression and anxiety um, and also sometimes when grief might become prolonged and and so on. So I think there's a lot more that can be done there and I thought it was interesting at the federal level when there was the certain policies came out talking about mental health but nothing in there was relating to grief and loss and, and so on um and yeah so i think i think there's a lot more that we can do and I'm, I'm doing a research project at the moment but it's quite um it's just in sort of really those formative stages and we're looking at grief literacy but what what does it look like what does it mean to young people so those who are age 14 to 24. so i have a youth advisory committee and we also have young people who are chief investigators on the grant itself and we're co-designing this research study so that we can understand you know does the term even resonate with young people in the first place and if so what what does it even mean and how um yeah what would a grief literate society look like from the perspective of young people so that hopefully we can then translate some of that finding some of those findings into into practice here in
0: western australia that would be amazing. And I wish you all the best of luck with that. <laughs> I you. guess one of the clearest things for me that I found was obviously the breaking bad news component of grief. Um, I haven't had a family member pass away this year and explaining to my two young children that that family member was going to die. I guess I built it up more and I would say I would call myself someone not an expert, but I would say I've dealt with a lot of grief in my professional capacity. But I found that it was a very daunting, terrifying experience, if I'm being honest, when I put was put in the personal capacity of breaking that news to my children. And, you know, they literally took it fine. They were like, oh, OK. And they were like, what's for dinner kind of thing. And then we had some questions days later and things like that. Do you think that as health professionals perhaps we put a greater meaning or even as adults that we put a greater meaning on saying those words or breaking that news to children and do you think that somehow we either inhibit ourselves from fully engaging with it or do we inhibit our children by not fully answering those questions when we are breaking bad news or talking about bereavement or death or or loss
1: Yeah I don't think we necessarily um you know, we certainly aren't doing it on purpose. Uh, of course, it's going to be mm. very different when you're wearing your professional hat versus wearing your hat as the mum of, of the children you're talking to or whatever. Um, So, yeah, don't be – we shouldn't be too hard on ourselves, but just being human beings, I think that's mm. actually a great strength of us, that we, we should be able to acknowledge that humanity and, and be able to wear both of those hats at the same time when when required. But I think it's, yeah, I, in terms of the broader conversation with children, I think it is important to have to have that as a topic of conversation in our families, so that hopefully the first time we talk about um issues of death or grief or loss or so on with children isn't because we're having to break the news of something awful happening. So that if it is just something that, as we walk down the street and we see a dead lizard and we just point out, "Oh, look! There's a dead lizard. It looks dead. Um, that means it's not going to come back to life." I think. I wonder how its lizard family is feeling. How do you think they might be feeling? And and just and to say those words and to use D words as well, deaf, dying, and dead for children mm. to avoid the euphemisms, and just have build that language in the family about talking about those issues and talking about feelings and so on so that um not just if when these things happen in in life but when they do the kids are more uh, hopefully a bit more equipped to understand the concepts and to have that language to talk about it and like you said to um it's really important as well to invite that ongoing conversation so it's not just a one-off thing and then that's it we never talk about this situation again we allow them to have questions the next day or what does this mean or you said this or and particularly as they grow and develop the way the questions they're going to have or the feelings they're going to have are going to be very different when they're six years old to when they're eight and then when they're 10 and then when they're 15 and so on so to allow that unfolding because they're going to get a lot more sophisticated in every way as they grow
0: and that will have different questions as well. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that it's it's really empowering. Um, I guess as one of my final questions I'd love to know if you had two key nuggets of information or insights that you'd like to share that if health professionals take nothing else away from today other than the note the notion of grief awareness day amongst children and that you know our children and our young people can handle us talking about grief death dying and loss are there any key important snippets that you'd like health professionals to take away from this conversation
1: oh it's hard to, to, to distill it down to just two but I guess often I, I know end... I'm
0: really I've been very specific
1: <laughs> often I end um, lectures or talks to health professionals with the idea that, if nothing else, do away with the concept of there are five stages of grief that go in this specific order that end like this. Put all that in the bin, let's never talk about those things again. and um, yeah, and I guess the other thing would be for health professionals, particularly on after the last few years, to be really kind to themselves. Um, we definitely don't need any more health professional bashing and that's certainly not ever been my intention. Um, but yeah, to just to be kind on, it's okay if you don't have all the answers, but they're there when you get a chance for time, when, if you ever have any time in your spare time, there's some places and some websites and some people to talk to, and it's okay that it's something that you can develop. Um, I guess the, the knowledge and the skills and so on over time, um, yeah, and maybe even advocate for your, you know, your managers or whoever to put this a little bit more as a priority. So it's not just something that's always at the back burner, or um, we'll get to it if we get to it. But it's just part of it's part of life for the people we serve and the people we help, but also ourselves too. Um, so yeah, we it should never be an afterthought. It's something that should be just part of what we do as good practitioners.
0: Yeah, I agree. And I think it's absolutely paramount that we are kind to ourselves, having gone through a pandemic in a way that perhaps other people may not have experienced. Um, I've started to end all my podcasts, this being the second one, by asking my um, whoever I'm chatting to what they're hopeful for. So I guess, Lauren, in terms of moving forward with your work and in, you know, in your own life, what are you hopeful for most about the future?
1: Well, I hope that we can develop this sort of connected, compassionate community where um, people are able to, to, to grieve without it being stigmatised when people, and including children, are not grieving alone but can, can and are well supported. Um, I think, yeah, that's sort of this idea of how I would like things to go and I suppose on the flip side of that it would be nice um, in some point in the future, when I ask a bereaved person or a grieving person, you know, tell me what's been helpful, that I no longer get a response, well, I can tell you what wasn't helpful, and they rattle off a whole bunch of awful things that people have said to them that might have been years ago, and that so still sticks in them in their minds as being so hurtful, even though they know the intention wasn't necessarily to be hurtful, but just to stop us from saying those, you know, silly things that we say that actually end up being really powerful in the long term.
0: Yeah. And I think that's a really important note to take away is just what we say has such an impact on that person for, can have such an impact on that person for so long, whether it's kind or even if it's perceived unkindly. Um, So I guess that's, that's it for today Lauren and thank you so much for joining me and I really really appreciate your time and I know our listeners will as well Um, and good luck with your current study and I I'm very excited to read it and hopefully PACE will work with you again in the future very soon.
1: Yeah thank you so
0: much for this opportunity. No worries thanks for joining me Lauren. Bye. And that concludes today's episode. I'd like to thank you all for listening. Um, Hopefully you found it engaging and insightful. Should you have any queries or questions for any of the guests that we've had featured so far or myself or the team, feel free to get in contact with us through email. That's pace, P-A-S-C-E at cancerwa.asn.au. Similarly, you can find our webpage through www.pace.com.au. Here you'll be able to find a list of our events, upcoming education sessions, and if or when we're coming to a town or regional area near you. Um, You can also subscribe to our newsletter, um, which it will allow you to do on the webpage and engage with our learning management system through free e-learning, additional resources, discussion boards. Uh, We look forward to sharing our next episode with you. So until next time, keep up with the pace.